We're going to go to Romans 9 tonight, maybe, possibly, again. Been asking some basic questions lately. Sunday's message was, what is life? It's kind of a not-too-specific question. But then we ended up answering, what is eternal life? Then I'm going to be asking tonight, who is Israel? And we have one coming up, what is love? And those are really basic questions, answered in Romans. Who is Israel? Romans chapter 9. And let's just take a couple of moments for preparation. Father, we recognize the urgent encouragement to assemble ourselves together for the purpose of encouragement through your word, how important that is, how important it is to manifest the very life of Jesus in our mortal bodies, to be part of a community in which forgiveness is one of the major laws something we do not see around us in the world, but something we are committed to because God, you, for Christ's sake, have forgiven us. We thank you for this privilege. We pray that we will be aware of our divine teacher, the spirit of truth, whom you promised would lead us into all the truth, And glorify your son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here, for no other reason. So open our eyes, Father. Open the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our understanding, that we may behold wonderful things out of your word. And we always say that the sum total of all those things is Jesus Christ. May this present us with an encounter with our Lord Jesus and grant us definition and meaning through this most important epistle. We ask this in his name. Amen. In all of Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with the identity of Israel. And it's a theme that arose all the way back in Romans 2:28 and 29 where Paul insisted that a Jew is a Jew not by circumcision of the flesh according to the commandment of the sin hijacked letter but by circumcision of the heart by the holy spirit that's the key phrase Israel is not Israel without the holy spirit Romans 8 deals largely, leading up into Romans 9, Romans 8 deals largely with the subject of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's part and critical role, indispensable role really, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
and of the promised resurrection of our mortal bodies in whom he resides, Romans 8.11. The Holy Spirit is revealed as the power that stands against and overcomes the flesh, the flesh being more than just a lower nature of man, but a, an apocalyptic, cosmic, superhuman actor an adversarial actor against the people of God. The Holy Spirit is revealed as the one who stands against and overcomes the flesh. Romans 8, 4 through 13. He is revealed as the one who bears witness to our human spirit that we are the sons of God, the children of God. And if children were heirs, joint heirs together with Christ. That word sons of God, incidentally, is a, an eschatological term for the Israel of God, for Israel. For God says to Israel through Hosea, in the same place where I said to you, not my people, I will call you the sons of the living God. That same place is the cross where Jesus Christ was crucified. In the crucified Christ, God said no to a people under sin and yes to a people as his new creation. And so the Holy Spirit also is said to groan with all of creation. All of creation is groaning. It's really a stronger term. It's almost like a screaming in travail, an intense longing for its emancipation from slavery to corruption, from slavery to sin and the reign of death. And that, says the scripture, which the creation is waiting for, is the sons of God, the revelation, the apocalypse of the sons of God, the revelation of the Israel of God in glory. So he groans, the Holy Spirit, along with us. We groan along with all the creation. And he groans in us, and he makes intercession in us. He's an interior intercessor, an advocate for us, who helps us in prayer. He groans in all of creation and in those who are the proleptic new creation. We who have received, says the scripture, the first fruits of the Spirit, Romans 8.23, God promises to pour his spirit out on all flesh. We in whom he has evoked faith are those who are the first fruits of that Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, he's the spirit of faith. He evokes faith. We are the first fruits or the, the prolepsis, kind of the forecast or the harbinger of what the Holy Spirit will do universally among all mankind. I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. And through the outpouring of the spirit, Titus 3, 6 says, we have been regenerated, not according to works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the bath of regeneration. Through the Holy Spirit, the restoration of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us generously. The generous pouring out of the Holy Spirit refers back to Joel 2.28. I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. The effect of the poured out spirit on us, the first fruits of the spirit, is regeneration. God effects in us a new birth. It is not of our will. It is not of him that runs or him that wills. It is of God who shows mercy. It is the Holy Spirit. We are born of the Holy Spirit. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. James 1, 17 and 18 speaks of God without, as the one who is the father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning, no shadow cast by turning. And it is he who has given us new birth. He has brought us into being by a new birth that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creation. The Holy Spirit then is revealed as our interior intercessor who helps us in prayer because whether we think we know this or not, we really don't know what to pray for or how to pray as we ought to Romans eight twenty six and 27. All prayer is related to that yearning of a new creation. We pray for one another. We pray for all the saints, Paul says. We pray for all humankind, for leaders, rulers. What a difference what we see today. Prayer for rulers. This is the will of God who is willing that all men, all humankind be saved and brought to the knowledge of the truth. That's the knowledge of not your truth or my truth, the truth, which is embodied in a person named Jesus Christ. In fact, truth is embodied in Jesus, says Ephesians 4.21, and Jesus himself said, I am the truth, and I am the life, and I am the way, and the spirit is called the spirit of truth. He will not speak on his own, nor will he speak of himself. He will speak of me. He will speak of what he's received from my father and from me. He will bring it to you. He will lead you into all the truth. He will show you things to come. That is, he'll give you that expected glorification. He'll show you things to come. And he will evoke faith in you, which is the assurance of things hoped for. There is not my truth or your truth. There is the truth, and it's Jesus Christ. So we can talk about my truth as long as my truth is Jesus Christ. There is no truth apart from him. There is no real love apart from him. There is no reconciliation between warring peoples except in him. There is no grace but the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, prayer. All prayer, in one sense, is a petition for the kingdom of God to come. Teach us to pray. Okay. Father in heaven, let your name be held sacred. Let your kingdom come. You want to know how to pray? Let your kingdom come. Pray that. All prayer, then, 
if it's initiated by the Holy Spirit in us, has something to do with the yearning for the kingdom of God to come. And so we pray, may the kingdom of God come. What if we have a person in our family who's in need, great need, maybe something physical, something in the health realm, something in the spiritual realm, something in the soul realm. We pray that the kingdom of God will come in some way to that person because kingdom, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's an elevating grace. We have the privilege as believers here tonight and every night and every day to commit our souls to a faithful creator in 1 Peter 4.19, to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice in Romans 12.1, and to entrust our spirit into his hands in Psalm 31.5. And so we do. All prayer is in one sense a petition for the kingdom of God to come a petition to the Father in the power of the Spirit and in the name of the Son for the kingdom of God to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our prayer for one another is always related somehow to let your will be done in their lives on earth right now, even now, as it is done in heaven. If we detach prayer from what Jesus taught us and how he taught us to pray, then our prayer will not be oriented toward a yearning for the kingdom of God to come. It'll be some other just personal advancement for ourselves or for someone else. All prayer is in one sense a petition of the kingdom of God to come and for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why the Bible says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, which means keep reminding yourself that there is no love except the love of God. Be a recipient of it, because only as you're a recipient of it will you love, for we love because we were loved by God. Be loved because he loved us first. So then, the Holy Spirit is the divine person who pours out the love of God in our hearts. There's no verse more central than that with regard to the Holy Spirit and the regard to love. That's Romans 5.5. 5. Paul has already said that. The love of God in our hearts, poured out by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, is the definite marker that we, in whom that love is poured out, are Israel. We are Israel. Now, bear with me. The reason I say that is because Israel in praxis, that is Israel in its function, in its doing, in its doing, its praxis, Israel in praxis Israel, in reality, are the people who love the Lord their God with all of their heart. God pours out the love of God in our hearts. 
by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Once again, Israel, in reality, are the people who love the Lord their God with all their heart. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Shema, O Israel. Shema, Israel. The Lord your God is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart. It goes on from there. The unsaid word in this promise and command, when he says you will love the Lord your God, it's not just a command, it's a promise. You will love the Lord your God. Why? Because it's the gift of God. God's gift is the gift of God's own love for himself and for others. The unsaid word in this promise and command is the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I say promise and command? Because, for example, when the word says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it goes on to say, for it is God in you, both willing and doing. So, command and promise are one in God. The unsaid word in this promise and command in Deuteronomy 6.5 is the Holy Spirit. He is often unspoken. Later in the writings of the prophets, we just dealt with the Torah, hear, O Israel. Later in the writings of the prophets, which are so instrumental and indispensable to Romans, Romans 1.2, Romans 16.26, It is revealed just how this will become a reality, just how it will become a reality that a people will love the Lord their God with all of their hearts. I know, mind, soul, strength, too. We're talking about the heart right now, the first. In Ezekiel 36, 27... Yahweh, the God of Israel, makes this irrevocable promise. I will place my spirit inside you and cause you to walk in my commandments and to guard and observe my judgments. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right to say this, and I just read this today in his book called Ethics, which he did not finish. He left the comforts of America and went to Germany, where the church was undergoing some persecution, at least the church that wasn't the state church. And of course, he was executed in April of 1945 by the Nazis, but He wrote this in a book that he didn't quite finish called Ethics. I love how he started this book out. I can't resist it every time I think of the book. He said, ethics, all throughout human history, the goal of ethics is the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, the first thing we do as Christian ethics is undo that whole thing. And he speaks of the knowledge of good and evil, which, of course, we've spoken of many times. But he said this, the love with which man loves God and his neighbor is the love of God and no other. 
For there is no other love. There is no love which is free and independent from the love of God. In this then, the love of men remains merely passive. Now, we always have to say men and women today because Bonhoeffer and Barth always use the masculine plural, and you know all about that. So he says, the love of men, we mean human beings, men and women. In this, then, the love of men and women remains merely passive, he says. Loving God is simply the other aspect of being loved by God. And this is why Romans 5, 5, the love of God is poured out in our hearts. And I remember asking, is that a subjective genitive, which means God's love for us is poured out in our hearts, or is it an objective genitive? God's, our love for God is poured out in our hearts. I almost like that better because that, that would mean that God pours out my love for God in my, in my heart. The love that I'm commanded to have for God is poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit. And that's good news, and it's also true. Because we have another kind of genitive called the plenary genitive, where it means both. The love of God for us and our love for God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The whole thing is God's gift of his total love. And that's what I think Bonhoeffer got. He was only 39 when they killed him. He had an amazing amount of insight for a young man. Soon I'll be 39. So I'm pushing toward this. I, you know, any day now could be 39. Me and Jack Benny, perpetually 39. I've been 39 for almost 39 years, and it's amazing. But, uh, but here we have it. In this, then, he goes on to say, the love of men remains merely passive. Loving God is simply the other aspect of being loved by God. Being loved by God implies loving God. The two do not stand separately side by side. So the thrust and the sum of Yahweh's commandment is to love one another. Why, can he, why did Paul say love one another is the sum, anakephaliao, the summing up of all the law in this one word, that you will love your neighbor as yourself? For one thing, that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Christ is in us. But for another thing, you can't really speak about loving your neighbor without speaking about love for God. Because again, it's the same aspect. It's just one aspect of the same love. It's what I would call the identical twin of love the Lord your God. The identical twin mandate. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did that. He's the one that put that thing together in Mark twelve twenty nine to 31. So before Yahweh made this promissory prediction, I will place my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my ordinances and observe my judgments and what is the sum total of his judgments and his ordinances and commandments? Love. I will place my spirit in you and cause you to love. Me with all your heart, 
and your neighbor as yourself is what he's saying here. Because Paul said it in Romans 13, 8 to 10. Don't have any outstanding debts in your life except this debt and always leave it outstanding to love your neighbor as yourself. Because in this is the sum total of the law, the sum and summary of all that the law requires. And so this is the same thing as saying God places his spirit in us and pours out the love of God in our hearts. This love isn't any old kind of love. This isn't even the kind of love that we say lays its life down for a righteous person or steps in front of a person and gets hit by a bus, or a good person. This is the kind of love that God commended toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on behalf of us. While we were still enemies, God reconciled us. While we were ungodly, Christ died. That's that kind of love that's poured out in our hearts. I wouldn't even run around bragging that I'm a Christian unless that was active in my life somehow. I think it's better to be asked, are you a Christian, than to go around bragging that you're one. So then, behold, I am for you, he said. Before, this is, I never saw this until recently, and now I can't stop looking at it. Before he says this in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven, I will place my spirit in you and cause you to fulfill my ordinances, which is also found in Romans 8, 4. If you walk in the spirit, taking that walk metaphor, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but you will instead fulfill the, the righteousness that the law requires will be fulfilled in you by the Holy Spirit. So then, before there is Roman, Ezekiel 36, 27, God said this. See if this doesn't sound familiar. 36, 9 of Ezekiel. For behold, I am for you. That's the central declaration of Romans, Romans 8.31. Right in the dead center of Romans where we're pushing from the right and the left, God is for us. But not only is God for us, the central declaration is, continues in 8.32 because God did not spare his only son but freely gave him over on behalf of us all, us all, the real central declaration in Romans is God is for us all. If God is for us all, Paul could say, why are you guys fighting, you Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? Why are you Gentile Christians assuming that God has forsaken his people Israel? And why are you Jews assuming that the Gentiles still have pagan status because they haven't been circumcised and they don't follow the Sabbath or the calendar. If God is for us all equally and gave his son on behalf of us all, what are you fighting about? Where does that leave room for prejudices or group biases? There's none left. And so, behold, I am for you. And then he goes on to say, and I will turn toward you. I will turn toward you. And you will be tilled and sown. 
Now, there's an agricultural metaphor for you. Yahweh in the flesh used a lot of those. His name is Jesus. Talked a lot about seeds and tilling and sowing. And a sower. In fact, the central parable that he spoke was about the sower. And he said, if you understand this parable, you'll get them all. You'll understand them all. So, this promissory prediction, behold, I am for you and I will turn toward you and you will be tilled and sown, is explained in Ezekiel 36, 26, the famous verse that Israel is to be tilled, you picture the plowing of a furrow, The farmer then takes out the stones in the furrow so he can plant seeds. I will take out your stony heart. The stony heart is the radical incapacity to resist the evil inclination. I'll take out and I'll put within you a heart of flesh. That's none other than Jesus Christ who became flesh and his heart beats in us. What did he mean then? You will be tilled and sown. That Israel is to be tilled refers to the stony heart being taken out of them as stones are removed from the furrows of a tilled field. That she is to be sown refers to the divine act of a heart of flesh being set in them as seeds planted in the newly tilled furrow. This is what Paul referred to in Galatians 6. If you sow to the Spirit, you will, from the Spirit, reap a harvest of life, even now, even now, and into the age to come, into, unto eternal life. So it's important to understand that both the tilling and the sowing are done to Israel by God. I have to ask myself, am I saved because I turned to him or am I saved because he turned to me? And Jeremiah 31, 19, turn me and I'll be turned. He turned me, so I was turned. He turned to me. He gave himself for me. He turned to me. He confronted me. He saved me. And then he gifted me with faith so that I could discern the totality of his love for me. It's important to understand that God did it. These are acts of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who places his Holy Spirit in them and in us. What is equally important to understand is that the Spirit has also been placed in certain Gentile people by the millions, some of whom reside in Rome in the 50s of the first century A.D. and who are the addressees, along with many Jews, of the epistle of Paul to the Romans. How do you figure? What kind of people are these? He places his Spirit in them and causes them to love who are they in Galatians 6:16 Paul hit the height of his apostolic audacity i believe 
We taught Galatians. I taught it backwards from here back. Peace and mercy be upon all those who walk according to this rule. What rule? The rule of a faith that works by love. Galatians 5, 6. The rule even to the Israel of God. Paul closes the epistle to the Galatians with the pronouncement of a blessing of mercy, which counterbalances and even cancels the curse that he began the epistle with against anyone, angel or human, who would bring another gospel than the one he brought and he and his associates brought to the churches. In northern Galatia, I believe the northern Galatia theory about where these churches were planted. Ankara, Pessinum, Tavium, those three cities. We may go there next, I don't know. I have many suitors coming up to my study door, knocking on the door. One of them is Hebrews. What about me, says Hebrews? (laughs) Another one's Ephesians. What about me, says Ephesians? I mean, that's where the roots of everything are, including the anakephaliosis, the summary of all things in Christ Jesus, the salvific summary. What about me? Then one weird day, I had Luke knock on my window. I said, wait a minute here. I just hope that Haggai doesn't come running someday. But uh, <laughs> In Galatians 6.16, in my view, Paul hit the height of his apostolic audacity when he called for a blessing of peace and mercy on the Israel of God. A blessing that counterbalanced the curse that he pronounced on anyone, human or angelic, who would proclaim another gospel than the one by which they were called by the grace of Christ. At the climactic point of Galatians, and this may be as far as I go tonight, I want to introduce this, because it's what's, what he did in Galatians 6.16, he's doing over three chapters in Romans 9 through 11. In some regards only with a different twist, a different goal is before him. At the climactic point of Galatians, the apostle to the nations, the apostle to the pagans, we could say, the apostle to the Gentiles, pronounced the blessing of mercy on those who walk according to the rule of a faith that works by love, even to the Israel of God. He didn't say, and, oh, also the Israel of God. It's the ascensive use of the conjunction chi, even to the Israel of God, meaning the Israel of God, the Israel that God recognizes is the people who walk by a rule of love, who are the lovers of God. Whether they're Gentiles or Jews, doesn't even matter. Circumcision and uncircumcision, he says, not important.
I think it was Lou Harper in the drowning pool, Paul Newman. Not important. That's what Paul said in Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision, uncircumcision, as labels for a people, not important. What is important is a faith that works by love. What is that? What is it that identifies the Jew? Circumcision or uncircumcision? No, the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in the heart. This, was, this truth is what undid my slavery to dispensationalism, which is an enslaving system of men beginning largely with the Plymouth Brethren, going all the way through some of, the, some of my doctrinal heroes. But it was one of the first times I got to flex my muscle and break through some of this stuff. So at the climactic point of Romans... Listen carefully. At the climactic part of Galatians 6, where he pronounces mercy on the Israel of God, at the climactic part of Romans, at the end of 11.32, he talks about God showing mercy to all of humanity. How do you figure this? How do you get this? What happens here? There's another group of scholars. I respect both sides of these. I respect all the people that do their homework. I respect them all. But there's a thing called salvation history, and I don't believe in it. I believe there's a salvation eschatology or a salvation Christology. I don't believe in the theory of a salvation history, and I'll try to unravel this as we go in the next few months maybe or maybe by two years from now. At the climactic point of Romans, Paul announces God's intention to have mercy on all of mankind. Really, that mercy has already been shown to all mankind in Christ and him crucified, where he is the mercy seat, the seat of mercy, the hilasterion, the atonement. But that mercy shown to all will be manifested to all when every eye sees him, even those that pierced him. Every eye sees him is a means every eye means every person will experience salvation for the scripture says every all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord salvation of God Isaiah 40 and verse 5 quoted in Luke 3 6 and that see the salvation means experience the salvation all flesh all together sees him. When every eye sees him, even those that pierced him, the remarkable idea of salvation is even those who pierced him. Then we say, yeah, even those terrible Romans under Pontius Pilate, even those terrible Jewish leaders who cried crucify him, look a little further and you might find that that's you and me who are complicit with the sin that enslaved us. Every eye will see him means all those who pierced him, all of us. It's an unrestricted love, folks. It's an uncontingent grace. It's an unconditional love. 
God's love for the enemies, God's love for us while we were still hostile to him. He reconciled us. So at the climactic point of Romans, Paul announces in Romans 11.32, God's intention to have mercy on all of mankind, and so the mercy and peace that is pronounced upon the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16 is to be on all of humankind in Romans 11.32. And this is not a painful theological stretch Because in Joel 2.28, Yahweh promised to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Again, what was the effect of the poured out spirit on the audience who received Titus? Titus, the church at Crete, and others, and Paul himself. The bath of regeneration accomplished by the pouring out of the spirit. The spirit poured out. The effect of the poured out spirit is regeneration and restoration. God plans to restore all things, and God plans to pour out his spirit on all flesh. The pouring out of the spirit on all flesh isn't to judge people. The pouring out of the spirit on all flesh is to regenerate and restore all flesh, all humanity in all of its times. I guess by now I ought to tell you I'm a committed universalist, not a hopeful one. And by that I mean a Trinitarian believer that Jesus Christ's redemption and Jesus Christ's salvific work has a universal horizon and that his significance is universal and his significance is salvific. You couldn't convince me otherwise in a firing squad. Or, this would even be better, by offering me lots of money. I would say, give me that money. No, I don't agree with you. I'll see you. Take the money. Actually, I don't want money. Money is not, not a good thing. I mean, it's a necessary thing. But anyways, the effect of the poured out spirit is regeneration and renewal. Titus 3, 5, and 6, which is associated with rectification by grace in Titus 3, 7. Salvation, then, is according to God's mercy. Salvation is according to God's mercy. According to his mercy, he saved us. Salvation is according to his mercy. According to his mercy, he saved us. God will show mercy to all. If according to his mercy he saved us and God's going to show mercy to all, is not the mercy that he shows to all a saving mercy? I think so. But then again, I've only been studying it since 2007. So like Dennis Miller always said, I could be wrong. Salvation is according to God's mercy. And... This mercy is grounded in God's Trinitarian, the triune God, not Unitarian. The Trinitarian philanthropic action of God in the Christ event. Everything goes back to Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
raised, exalted. Crucified has to do with the entire event of his suffering, his passion, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, his enthronement, and even his parousia, his appearing to all creation and all humankind in all of its times when time finally becomes simultaneous. But why is that? Because in Jesus Christ and him crucified, everything is embodied. In Jesus Christ is embodied all of uncreated reality. What is uncreated reality? God. The fullness of divinity. That means the totality of divinity without remainder is in him somatikos bodily, says Colossians 2.9. In him bodily, somatikos embodied, is all of divinity, the fullness of uncreated reality. But also, when he became flesh, he did so to embody all of created reality. All of created reality. Because as Ephesians 1.10 says, God is... Is the mystery of his will is to sum up everything, recapitulate everything, comprise everything of his son, Christ, in Ephesians 1.10. So, in Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised, exalted, enthroned, is embodied all of the uncreated created reality of divinity in Colossians 2.9 and Romans 9.5, where he's called God blessed over all. And all of created reality, including all of humanity, all angelic beings, he embodies all of divinity in him bodily, who is the head of principalities and powers. The head of principalities and powers means that he also embodies a redemption for the angelic beings. If he's the head, they're the body. They are part of what he embodies, the redemption that's embodied. That's where I got in trouble asking that question one time. (laughs) I always have fond memories of that day. Didn't get the question quite out. Does this mean that the redemption which Jesus Christ effected for us and for mankind also has? Don't be bizarre. I was going to say also has some kind of redemptive impact on the angels. Don't be bizarre. Okay, that was the best favor ever done to me. You know why? I had to answer the question myself. The first pastor I had, I came down here and was totally lost. I was 27, 28 years old, lost, completely lost. I had people right within the sphere that were supposed to be co-workers trying to undo everything I was doing and tried to undo all of what I was trying to do on the team. So I went to my mentor and I, I looked with puppy dog eyes. I couldn't wait to get all the way back to home base and look and look at the pastor and the pastor looked at me and got the whole point and he said, you can handle it and turned around and walked away. Another great favor. Thanks. What did I do? Handled it. So, man, those days, I wouldn't want to do them again. But anyways, the point being, 
that his all of created reality, including all of humanity, all angelic beings, all the presently yearning creation is embodied in him. When he presents himself to the Father, having ruled over all and subordinated all things under his feet, when he submits himself to the Father, it's not because he's subordinate and somehow lesser than the Father in terms of degree of divinity. It's because in him is all of the created reality that he's redeemed, that he submits to the Father so that God can be all in all in Romans and 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight, which is as far as Paul stretches out, eschatologically speaking, God all in all. And that's where the so-called orthodox patristic scholars took up and understood from origin to Bardason or from Bardason to origin to Clement all the way up through to John Scotus. They understood the apocatastasis pantone through Paul's stretch out eschatologically to that point of God being all in all. They understood this. And then people who are far lesser in terms of understanding and insight, have the audacity to call Karl Barth a neo-Orthodox because he got that point. And I've always, I keep asking the question, if Peter was right and not to be questioned or not to be argued with when he said all of the prophets from the beginning, that's prophets even before there was an Israel, All the prophets, God spoke through the mouth of all the prophets from the beginning. And I love Romelli's translation, from time immemorial. They spoke of apokatastasios panton, the restoration of all things. If that's what all the prophets have said from time immemorial, if that's what Peter said, that's what Paul said, that's what James said, That's what John said. That's what Jesus said when he spoke about a polygenesia, a regeneration of all things in John, Matthew 19, 28. And he said, my flesh is bread for the whole world. And God sent his son into the world to save the world, not to condemn the world. If all that is toward a universal restoration, then who are we to preach otherwise, to teach otherwise? than all the prophets. Maybe it's because of all the prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S, of popularity that we can have among our peers. In closing, therefore, and all I've done is my introduction, because I think these things are pretty important. If the effect of mercy is salvation, and as Paul said, all Israel will be saved only after the totality of the nations comes in. For God has consigned all Jews and Gentiles, all humanity, to disobedience, which is a disobedience that is rooted in unbelief, apathia, that he might have mercy on all. And again, I believe that's the peak. There are several peaks in Romans. There's 326, God justifies his son, Jesus. There's 521, the righteousness of grace reigning through righteousness. There's Romans 623, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's 838 and 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
There's 9.30 to 33. God blesses the Gentiles who had nothing to do with anything. Romans 10, 20, and 21. Isaiah is very bold to say, I stretch my hands out all day long to a defiant people, and I'm found by a people that weren't even looking for me. And Romans 11.32, he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. And then Romans 12.21, and then Romans 13.14, and then Romans 14.23, and then Romans 15.33, and then above all, Romans 16.25 to 27, which speaks of the mystery the revelation of the mystery, the apocalypse of the mystery, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery, which has always been in the writings of the prophets but is only now revealed to be seen and understood, that mystery being God's intent in Ephesians 1.10 to salvifically summarize everything in Christ. So God really isn't finished with his creation in the beginning because creation in the beginning isn't finished until there is a redemptive act that completes it. A redemptive act that's finished when Jesus said to die finished. So Mel Gibson did get that right in The Passion of the Christ when his mother asked him as he was marching to Calvary, just what this was all about. And he said, I'm making all things new. Exactly. So, if that's the case, that God has mercy on all of humanity in Jesus Christ and him crucified, then not only is all Israel saved, but all Israel is saved within a horizon of universal salvation, the salvation of all creation, the emancipation of all creation, Romans eight nineteen to 23, and the salvation of all mankind, for in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. And I have accepted this judgment, Paul said. I've come to this judgment. This is one of Yahweh's judgments. You will walk in my judgments. Here's a judgment. If one died for all, then all died. And if all died when he died, then when he rose, what do you think happened to all? He who was handed over for our sins was resurrected for our justification. Who's our justification? I think Romans 5.18 answers it. The justification of life to all humankind. So, who is Israel? Jesus is Israel. Jesus Christ is not only the God of Israel, but he's also the Israel of God. But in him is embodied all of divinity, the God of Israel, and in him is embodied all of humanity. So the new creation is all about love. It's all about a, the love of God being poured out in the hearts of every person, which is so antithetical to what you see today in America. It's so, it is so, I long for it. I'm glad it's so bad right now because I see the antithesis when Christ comes. Everybody loving one another, forgiving 
I've heard so much palaver in these past every time I turn on the news, which isn't very often because I'm sick of almost everything right now, except I got to live in this world. But I have never heard one word about a thing called forgiveness. I never heard the word forgiveness in my life on the news in a year. Never. But it shouldn't be so among us. Forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Forgiveness cancels satanic advantage. Satanic advantage. Satan has advantage even over victims of terrible things done to them. They let the terrible thing done to them victimize them to, for their whole lives, psychologically and emotionally, so that they live their whole lives with a ruined life, rather than forgiveness which would have freed them from that whole tyranny of victimization and also allowed God the freedom to deal with the perpetrator in ways that only God can deal with people. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave it up to me because my vengeance, when I put it on a person, I not only judge, I transform them into something they weren't before. So who, who is Israel? Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is the embodiment of Israel. He is the God of Israel and the Israel of God. But he who embodies all of Israel as Israel's Messiah is also called the Savior of the world in John 4.42. And he embodies all of humankind in Adam, once in Adam. So all of humankind is the Israel of God who walks according to the rule of love because God pours his spirit out on all flesh, and the spirit that he pours out on all flesh pours out the love of God in the hearts of the saints. Of course, this is not yet occurring in all of humanity. Do I have to prove that? And in all of creation. But its beginnings are evident. Its beginnings are evident even now in those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. I'm going to close with this. It is crucial that we understand that as those in whom the Holy Spirit has evoked faith, and I'm staying all around the Holy Spirit tonight on purpose, I think, I'm not on my purpose. As the Holy Spirit has evoked faith, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That means that even now, we have a modicum, a very small amount, but an identifiable amount of the experience of the life of the age to come. That's why Hebrews 6, 4 to 5 says, we have been enlightened, said the writer. Not only that, we have tasted of the heavenly gift. Notice the word tasted. We've tasted of the heavenly gift. We have become companions with the Holy Spirit. We have tasted of God's good word and the powers of the age. And the word in the Greek is on the verge of coming fully. The powers of the age that's on the verge of coming fully. 
But we should also understand that this is merely a taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good, says Peter, quoting Psalm 34. And that only when the age comes fully will we have the full feast, the messianic feast. Until then, I don't think I have to tell you this, we are in the struggle of the flesh against the spirit. Until then, we will sin and fall short again and again and again of the glory that will one day be ours in bodily resurrection. When we are finally embodied with incorruption and immortality. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not planning to sin. He that has this hope in him purifies himself. It's a great purifying hope against sin. I think there are times when I'm tempted to sin by anger or by hostility or by saying something slanderous. I'm tempted. And then the thing that stops me is my hope of incorruption and immortality, hope of the glory of God. Until then, we will fail one another from time to time. We will offend one another and be offended. We will hurt one another and will be hurt. This is why forgiveness must be our watchword. Forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has fully and finally forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. So this has to be the case among us. Among the people who possess the first fruits of the Spirit, Forgiveness puts an end to the advantage of Satan, who right now has a field day when forgiveness is absent. He has a field day of advantage when forgiveness is absent. 2 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. That leads us up to our exegesis of Romans 9, where we will end. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for this introduction, because really what this is all about isn't found so much in the details as in an overview of Romans 9 through 11. You are revealing to us the identity of Israel. And there is a, an intimate connection that we have seen, Father, thanks to your grace, an intimate connection between the identity of Israel and the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. For even Jewish rabbis and scholars and prophets have always understood that the salvation of Israel is the salvation of all creation. However, they have not understood what you have given us to understand that it's all in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the Christ.